So this is the single biggest event that has dramatically impacted the current generation's life. Welcome to another cup of positivity. I'm your host, Freeman Beals. And in this episode, we're going to get into cultivating happiness at work. The difference between an I-centric and a we-centric type of thinking, the mindset shift that we've really seen over the last few generations, and lastly, what COVID did to the workforce. There's a lot of value in here, and I really would encourage you all to listen to the very end. More importantly, this is the last episode of A Cup of Positivity. Where am I going next? Well, at the end of this episode, if you stick around, you will get a quick sneak peek of where I'm going to go, where to find me next, and what is on the horizon for me. Thank you so much. And for the last time, grab your glasses and raise a toast to a cup of positivity. Alrighty. Happy days, everybody. We are here with an incredibly important person. The person, if you're hearing me, you're going to hear in a second. If you're listening, you'll probably see her sat beside me here. Her name is Rena Ernst, and she's an organizational consultant. You've had a ton of positions in HR. You're really big on building happiness and productivity in the workplace and how that then translates to teams being better and more productive and more efficient with what they do. You've also written this incredible book called Show Up Positive, which has got all sort of actual tips and leading things in there. She's holding it up for anybody watching. So we're going to talk about that, I'm sure. And then lastly, you're also labeled as a positive influencer. So you're just, you're in, I was looking at all your stuff and you're doing so much and you've got all this amazing stuff going on. So thank you so much for taking the time today to sit down with me and all the listeners here. Just, I want to say thanks first off, right off the bat for being here and you know, sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much, Rita. Thank you for the invitation, Freeman. And how could I not say yes to a cup of positivity? <laughs> like if I'm a positivity influencer, I clearly need to be in a conversation on a cup of positivity. So this is just uh, kismet. This is meant to be. I, this is wonderful. Thank you for the invitation. You're very welcome. I, we connected on LinkedIn a while ago and had a coffee chat that was probably booked at half an hour. And I'm, it probably went well over that which is normally an indication to me that like, okay, this is a person that speaks the same kind of language that I do, the same concepts, and it's somebody that I want to talk to more on. So it's so great to have you on here. I usually start a lot of these with kind of figuring out where your journey to positivity started. So if you could kind of take us back in the time back machine to what was the first initial thing that you can remember anyways that kind of started you on the path of like, oh, there's a huge benefit to being positive. If I go all the way back to the beginning of my work coming out of graduate school, my degrees in organizational psychology, my first positions were actually in manufacturing plants. And here's the interesting story about that. At that time, so people, are, this is going to date me tremendously. At that time, <laughs> um, we still had manufacturing in the U.S. We manufactured a lot of things besides cars in the U.S., um, some of my first jobs were in textile plants that have since moved offshore to other places. But um, the U.S. manufacturing base was trying to figure out how to be competitive in the world market. And the Japanese were far and away the highest standard of quality on the planet. Their throughput and the quality that they were able to create with that throughput. I mean, Germans create tremendous quality, but not with a lot of throughput. Slower process, right? So Japanese were really the standard. And so, so many American businesses were studying the Japanese ways. How is it that Japan is able to do this? And they have this process called Kaizen, which is about how they come together as a team to work to create results. And I was a part um, in my first employers of the frontline work with, um, with manufacturing frontline teams and actually turning them into teams or attempting to turn them into to teams and changing the whole management philosophy and model around the way that we ran the operation and giving more control to the employees at frontline at the task 
Um, and I don't know that we ever really got that right or fully implemented. Um, in most instances, as I've already alluded to, after NAFTA passed, most of that left American shores because mm. it was just cheaper to have it produced somewhere overseas. But that was really the start of that, that whole idea of um, most manufacturing plants had unionized prior to me coming into the work workforce because they were such toxic places to work. And I'm not talking about just the... Um, the process of the toxins that are created in <laughs> not the physical plastics toxins. and in because I did work in chemical manufacturing quite a bit. The energy of the workplace it was very negative. It was very combative. It was very us versus them, and um, we actually had this philosophy in manufacturing that we didn't want people to think. We mm. wanted them to come be automatrons. And just do exactly the steps we told them to do and to not think independently about anything. And what we learn from a psychology point of view and what organizational psychology knows is that people don't have happiness in that. They don't have fulfillment when that is the construction of their work assignment. And so therefore, we don't get good quality, we don't get a good engagement, we get absenteeism and all of these other issues. We get safety issues in manufacturing plants was a big thing, safety mm. issues. And it's because people actually need their brains to be active and they need to have meaning and ownership in their work. And so this whole idea of converging happiness and pro productivity goes all the way back to my very first assignments and my wow. grassroots with team building in manufacturing plants. That's a long answer, isn't it? <laughs> no, that's all right. It was good because I find it really interesting that the initial response was like looking at places like Japan, which has such a rich culture of being doing things for purpose, right? It's a huge thing behind the Japanese culture with Ikigai and stuff like that that comes out of those teachings. So what, if you could kind of boil it down to like the main thing that you noticed about the way that the Japanese were doing things that the fact, the plants in America weren't doing, like what was the big differentiator? Well, the, there's a huge advantage that the Japanese have over Americans when it comes to manufacturing. And that is that the culture in Japan is a very we based culture. Versus the culture in America is a very I-centric culture, right? So because mm -hmm. it is a we-centric culture, that means that people in Japan have this mindset of community and caretaking of the whole. And so in the, in the manufacture, in the work, we trust, they trust their people are going to do what's in the best interest of the whole they're not going to take a shortcut because it's easier for them they're, because they're not eccentric. They're going to think more broadly about the whole and how they are doing their part in supporting and contributing to the whole. And therefore, you can trust decision making and you can trust um, freedom of execution into the hands of those people. And you are interested in hearing their ideas as frontline. You as a leader don't need to control. Nobody needs to control in Japan because we collectively have this agreement about how we're going to be together in our shared commitments. So you said our shared purpose mm -hmm. together. And so now there is a more even, we're, we're in a team together. There's a little less hierarchy in the way that we operate and an openness to hearing from anybody at any level because we trust in this shared purpose. I love that. I love the concept of a shared purpose. And it's so interesting that that's something that you said is very behind the Japanese culture. And you see it when you go over there and the way they interact with each other and the way they look after their elderly. It has been like changing. That. So yeah. I've heard that it's a little bit different. Like Japan, has got, as they've gotten more Western influence and the generations have shifted, you see a little more of the eccentric thing. Mm. So... You have to put this in the context, listeners, because <laughs> I, I haven't been back to Japan in many, many decades, and I haven't been following the work there. So, but I've heard that there are, um, you know, potentially some some evolving differences in their generations 
just as we have seen a lot of the traditions in Japan are not followed as tightly as they were in, in the time period that I'm talking about, which was the 1980s, 1990s. Yeah, which is interesting because we've obviously as well, Western culture begin to change and adapt in that that eye-centric positioning is starting to change a lot for us as well. But it's slow, right? It's quite slow, that change. It like, is, and it and it yeah. evolves over time. I mean, I, I, I think it's it's so interesting to me. If you look at the 1960s culture and the young people in the 1960s, they were really anti-establishment. They were, you know, they, they were, instead of I-centric, it was we-centric. We're going to live on communes. We're going to do these things, right? Those people today are baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And there are still a few baby boomers that that live their lives that way. But the vast majority of them, as they moved into adulthood and middle adulthood, became capitalists. Yep. <laughs> and many of them actually are very staunch Republicans, right? Or libertarians. Um, and so we, you know, it's it's it seems like in each generation. And when in, in our youth, we have this desire to come together as a whole and move and own and take ownership, this grassroots movement. Um, and it's just a question with each subsequent generation, how long they're going to hold on to that. I mean, the millennials, I think, have held on to that the longest to some extent. But mm-hmm. there are still a lot of millennials who are about their personal wealth. Mm-hmm. In, in advancement. And so now you've got um, you got Gen Z coming behind and they're in the early part of their youth and they're really pushing strongly and banding together and really trying to um, get out of this um, um, me, me, me conversation. And, you know, let's take care of the planet, th- these kinds of things. But we've seen this before. It's just a question of the stickiness. And there's something that happens when all of a sudden you've got to pay a mortgage, you've got to put food on your table, (laughs) you're raising kids, whatever, that somehow the capitalism just gets to be a little more um, enticing. Yeah, appealing. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yes. It's it's interesting that you've, you've come to that because I am... I guess I live in the millennial generation, so to speak, is what you could, I guess I fall into. I'm not very good at understanding where the lines are drawn because it gets confusing. But interestingly enough, I have a younger sister who's very much Gen Z. And it's neat to see the difference between when I was that age versus the way that she thinks. Even just the way that she communicates within her friend circles and her ambitions are very different. I think even the millennial generation was very still me-centric. I know a lot of the people I grew up with and stuff like that. And this could be because of where I grew up as well, changes the uh, outlook a little bit, but it was still very much the positions that you were looking for were like things that would benefit you in the, in the long term, right? Where my younger sister is a lot more things that will benefit the whole of humanity, right? She's very big on, she was for a long time. She wanted to be like a eco architect. So designing buildings and stuff that were very ecologically friendly. And now she wants to go into being a lawyer so she can actually actively be part of changing the laws and things that kind of govern how we actually look after stuff. So it's neat to see that it's like a very much a kind of ambitious and aggressive way to solve problems versus the me centric generation. Now that's obviously a very fine little window on a very large thing, but it is interesting that you brought that up as well. No, I, I think, I think we're seeing those trends across her generation for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and not that there, again, not that there isn't, there aren't differences. Um, you know, there are still people who are, um, striving for their personal wealth and striving for, um, you know, their personal advancement. It's, but in general, in the conversation within that community, um, you, you, you see a difference. So, yeah. I, I I like to think like, okay, why are we seeing that change? Like, what is that coming from? And I wonder if part of that comes from the change in the workplace and how that's approached as well. Because this whole like idea behind having happier workers and making your workers want to work where they want to work. I wonder if that is beginning to kind of leach into us as a cultural society as well. What do you think about that? Do you think that that's part of it or is it something else? 
It's a good question. I, I would have to think more deeply about it to really say with anything with certainty. So all you're going to get right now is sort of my <laughs> initial gut response to that. Um, you know, I, I think no matter what, uh, the pandemic in 2020 and 21 was like hitting a huge reset button on mm -hmm. society and the world. And we've seen both our society at its best and at its worst, right? Yeah, very and extremes of it. Very extremes of it. And, um, you know, it's it's going to be one of those things, that those moments, just like when the towers came down, um, it's going to be a generationally defining moment. Um, it is the biggest change to to the American workplace and work structure since world war two. And we mm -hmm. were conscripting men and women were having to go in and figure, you know, to try to keep plants and manufacturing going and that kind of thing. I mean, and so we no one that is actively in the workforce today really remembers any of that because at most they were just children during that time. So this is the single biggest event that has dramatically impacted the current generation's life. I mean, mm -hmm. just living life every day. Because like I said, they were kids at the end of World War II. Um, so they, they were like, they were seeing residual, but they weren't really of an age to be experiencing it fully. Yeah, it's and the so, first big shakeup that especially like my generation has seen, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, people have been talking about the fact that the employment contract is dead and we've got to, some people are saying we've got to write a new one. Not sure if I love that <laughs> kind of idea, but, uh, but it is true. You know, um, there are some people who were already... And most of them are younger people. A few of them are Gen Xers like me that have been fighting the good fight forever. And <laughs> um, but I think that the I think there are um, enough people out there that are like, well, wait a minute. Like we don't need to just fall back to where we've been before. Like it's time we've got this moment to create something different. Let's not lose that. And those are my people. I think they're your people too. You know, it's, it, it is yeah. that it's, it's not just about being positive, happy, smiley, because they are challenging norms, challenging the status quo, but the intention is a positive intention to say, let's not just default. Let's really be intentional and design. And um, that is a moment I think we all benefit from leaning into. Yeah, I'm trying to remember who it was I was listening to or what I read somewhere that was talking about. It is this chance for us to kind of relook at the way that we handle work, the workplace right now. For so many years, we kind of fell back on the nine to five method that was put in place essentially by Henry Ford back when that, when the production line was the thing and it was like, oh yeah, you could, you know, earn for your weekend so you can live well. And it was put in place with good intentions, of course, it just doesn't fit into the way that we as a society work right now. With this big shift, this big shake of the tree that I kind of like to refer to COVID as, what has been the big changes that you've seen in the workforce and in people's mentality towards it because of that big like wake up call almost? Well, if you go back, like you said, this is, I mean, this goes back uh, to the early 1800s, some of, of some of our workplace design, right? We did not have the communication tools mm. and abilities that we have today. So it made sense that it was important for people to gather in a place for communication and collaboration. What we learned, uh, because we had to, it was the burning platform style of change, which, you know, like make forces you, you don't have time to, to cry about it and fight it and kick and scream. You <laughs> yeah. just have to jump. Right. We learned how to use all of these amazing tools people have been developing 
and try. I mean, Zoom, it exists. I, I've been using Zoom in my business for, for many years before 2020. But gosh, it's gotten a heck of a lot easier now that mm -hmm. everybody's gotten past that barrier of, I don't know how to do a video and I don't think that's going to be very effective and blah, 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 blah. Right. I feel uncomfortable then, on the screen. Yeah. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, those tools, they're, they're no longer just to see like this. Right. I mean, you, I, I can put people into breakout rooms and let them have little individual conversations and I can create a whiteboard on my screen that they can write on and I can write on and we can co-create together. So I think people, people have been working on those tools with this idea of changing the way we work in a global world. And, um, and, but they were being used very selectively and very limitedly and with not a lot of uptake. And mm. all of a sudden, all of those conditions shifted and people experienced, hey, you know what? I really don't need to go sit in the office from eight to five every day and pay for lunch <laughs> and pay for parking and do all of these things. And I know when I need to connect with my teammates and we have tools called Microsoft Teams or whatever your company purchased that allow Slack, that allow me to, you know, real time get in touch with people. And, and then because I'm not creating this go to work compartment, I don't have to compartmentalize all the rest of my life. I can mm -hmm. live this integrated life where work can flow in my life. And I think that is what people are so attracted to. And I, I think that is the promise and the possibility and what the resistance to the return to the office um, it thing is about. Um, the return to the, the office, I feel like, is in response to fear more than anything else. There was a lot of data in the um, 20, in, in 2020 and early 21 that demonstrated that productivity not only did not decline, when people were working remotely and in many cases improved mm -hmm. and it really, it really challenges us the idea that you're paying people to work a 40 hour work week. That is certainly yeah. true. If you are a non-exempt employee, I mean, and, and yeah, a non-exempt employee is receiving hourly rate pay, but for exempt employees, the way that wage, wage and hour law was written, it was never supposed to be, about the amount of time you spent. It was about Interesting. completing the work. And so think about this. Sales forces have had hybrid workplaces their entire existence. Mm -hmm. If you are if you work in sales and you are always sitting at your desk in the office, you will not be perceived as being a good salesperson. You're supposed to be yeah. out. They're in their cars and they have all this freedom to design their, nobody's saying, were you logged on to your computer at 8 a.m. and, you know, and show me the schedule, what, what clients you visited. And when you weren't at a client from one to two in the afternoon, were you back on the computer? <laughs> and yet we got them tracking eyes and all kinds like, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. And not only did we not track that, but we paid them exorbitant bonuses for all that when sales they, they generated on the targets. So mm -hmm. if we could just take that construct and begin to integrate that thinking that the way we've always thought about salespeople, um, I think a lot of managers would find it easier, but they're buying into this fear-based conversation that if you give to people too much freedom, they won't work hard enough. They'll take advantage of you. You'll, you know, you'll end up in a worse place. And if we go back to where we started in the Japanese, if you have shared purpose, if you have people really buying into what they are in your organization to do and why they matter and how they contribute, and you are staying connected, we call that engagement in the surveys. If you're keeping people connected to that stuff, the data says they deliver and they deliver and they deliver. And when they stop delivering, you've got to figure out where the disconnect is in those things. And the answer is not to get out your whip and micromanage <laughs> and track eye movement on the computer. Yeah. It's interesting that I love where that progressed to and how it did. And, and the concept, and that was 
great, really amazing. I love at the end too that you you talked about this issue that we that we run into where it's like, okay, cool, we understand that sales is this over here and that's quantifiable. And we can see the metrics that they're hitting, targets and stuff like that. And they've run on commission base for a long time as well with sales, which kind of gives them a combined purpose because it's like, cool, like if you make money, you make more and then the company makes more and it kind of, you can see very clearly how that's attached. I find people struggle when they get into positions outside of that, where it's hard to quantify, okay, what impact is this employee necessarily having on the greater business, right? Sales is easy to see right? X revenue comes in, X revenue goes out. It's easy. It's numbers. But when you get into stuff like maybe a creative position or an HR position, things that don't necessarily have a direct, easy to kind of trace connection, how can people begin to understand and change that from being a 40 hour, a paid per hour thing to being more, you know, we're just going to pay you on the work that you do and give people that freedom back. What's the, what's the secret there? To me, the secret, and I will go back to the Japanese again, it's the I-centric versus the we-centric. If we want to truly be team-based organizations, if we want to have high-performance team cultures, then we need to be rewarding and sharing in the rewards based Mm. on the collective result, not so narrowly. We spend so much time trying to micro define each individual result and discriminate. I'm going to give Freeman 7% increase, but I'm only going to give Rita 3% because Freeman was the bigger contributor. Instead of Mm -hmm. looking at, did Rita do an assist? Did Rita pass the ball to Freeman or pass the puck? And Freeman scored, but could he have done that if he, not if he didn't yeah, have yeah. the pass from Rita, that's teamwork. And we don't think about teamwork in that way in the workplace. And I will tell you that there's countless examples of the sales thing gone awry. I mean, let's just look at the um, Silicon Valley Bank that just mm-hmm. shuttered. Right before they shuttered, what they do? They paid bonuses out to all of their people huh. that hit their bonus targets Despite the fact that it didn't matter that people were hitting sales target, the bank was not managing the business well enough to sustain itself. So you, it, it hmm. begs the question, do, you know, yeah. should they? I, when I worked in healthcare, we had a team of salespeople that nailed down this huge sale to a, a big global organization, got their U.S., uh, healthcare business. We brought it in to set it up, to run through the processing, processing claims, all of that kind of thing. Nothing could run through the automated system. There were so many exceptions in the contract that every claim had to be hand touched by one of our employees to go through the system. Well, wow. why did they get bonus for that? Was that a smart, like, like that just mm-hmm. added so much time and cost into operations. Yeah, they yeah, they they got us, you know, so many new members and we could claim but but it was not a good sale. It was, mm-hmm. you know, it it and the, there were a whole bunch of people up the chain that signed off on all those exceptions. <laughs> right? It's never as clean. It's never as clean as you think it is, is my point. It's never quite yeah. as clean. And the trick is we got to get out of who's the MVP thinking and get into how did the team as a whole play the game? And let's, yeah. everybody wins together or not. And I'm not saying everybody gets 2% all the time, but, you know, it, everybody should be winning together here. And if you have somebody that's on the team that's not contributing, you know, you pull them out, you, you put them on the bench and you put somebody else in, it's the same mm-hmm. thing. I mean, if you've got that going on, then they're not participating in the win. That's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I like how you just referred to it as very cut and dry to like a, a team, right? Which we don't do in business now that I'm thinking about it. We don't kind of bench somebody, so to speak, when they're not doing well. We just sort of 
either like kind of let them continue to not do well or eventually we just fire them because you're like okay they're not a good player where like that's not what teams generally do they're like, okay cool like let's go back into training and figure out why you're having these issues and you know you maybe we won't put you in a performance role right now but we're going to figure out how to get you back into a performance role and i, I don't think that's nothing that not a lot of workplaces do they're starting to of course that shift is happening um but they definitely traditionally that was not a thing that, that we kind of did why is it so important that we begin to look at things as a, as a team and a we like what begins to happen to organizations that do that both with the people the actual employees working but also in in your experience what you've seen what happens to like their bottom line and their net worth and the actual company itself so there is countless sources of data um, if you're looking for one i think the the best out there is the gallup organization does something called an employee engagement survey, um, the Q12. They have tons of information in research and reports on their um, website, um, in the general literature that you can read that show that organizations that have highly engaged employees outperform everybody else. They just hmm. completely outperform. They have better retention. They have less um absenteeism they have fewer quality defects they have um higher productivity levels i mean on, on every statistic that you can imagine they outperform everyone else when they have based on their set of questions a highly engaged workforce and so a highly engaged workforce basically means that people um it falls into like those 12 questions fall in for me into three basic categories. One is, do I know what I'm supposed to do and do I have the resources that I need to do them? So, you know, is, 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 is there a clear job here that I know what to do Two, am I, do I have the freedom to really contribute and do that as fully as possible? And three, am I part of a, a team and an organization where I have belonging that ties into my purpose. Mm -hmm. So, um, so people need that. They, they need those things in their work in order for them to be their best selves. Well, when each person can show up as their best self, that's an exponential. That's not even additive in a, in a teamwork in, environment that becomes exponential because I get inspired by you, Freeman. And you get inspired by me and Sally and that that's that exponential factor that you can't even put your finger around. And what mm -hmm. I learned so importantly in the pandemic, that is the impetus of the whole show up positive book and movement that I am leading is this essential fact. Culture does not come from the top of the organization. We've been told, been told that we talked about that. There's certainly a responsibility that, the top of the organization has to pay attention to culture and to really cultivate the right kind of culture and leaders have a role to play in that. But at the end of the day, what going through the pandemic proved is that culture is quite literally the sum of the experiences we create together in the workplace every day. Ooh, that's good. And that was that, really good. And that is <laughs> I hope why everybody wrote that down. <laughs> and that's why teamwork matters. Because mm -hmm. to be in a team, we have some agreement, some legitimate agreement we've made with one another about how we're going to treat one another. We we have shared purpose, share meaning, share respect, and we are we have rules of engagement around how we are going to make those things happen. And, mm -hmm. um, that is what makes that so sacrosanct, right? Is that you actually, to have a team, you actually spend time talking about, here's how we're going to treat one another, because this is how I help you be better. And you help me be better. And we get our needs met together. Yeah. And when we are, we are we're building community and we're building purpose and we're delivering together. And you know what, when that starts to fall apart, we have permission to say, Oh wait, we're violating our norms. We're not we're not walking together anymore. Let's pull it back together. Let's pull it back together. And and I call that repair work. So, you know, in high performance teams, it's not that they never have difficulties 
or never don't get along or struggle. It's that they have process and know how to do the repair to bring the team back together and, and keep it intact and, and pushing forward toward that high performance during those times of stress and challenge and change. Mm -hmm. Um, But what happened in the pandemic was it was so, it it was, it it was, you know, and F5 toward hurricane or tornado, you know, it was a, the, you know, 9.0 Richter scale. I mean, it was such a dramatic, tremendous shock to the system that the teams were not able to do that. And so the work I was doing and that I teach in Show Up Positive is that same repair work and how to go back from the ground and build that back up. And um, But we all choose how we show up. And when we have some agreement about, we, about the kind of place where we want to work with our teammates, and we all agree and we start practicing the behaviors that create the experiences that really define that we are unstoppable. We are, we're going to have a place that we love that, that fills our cup with a community of people where we want to be. And, you know, we spend over a third of our lives at work. Mm-hmm. So I'm passionate about this. I'm so passionate about this because I don't want that third of my life to be ho-hum, let alone like yeah. toxic and negative. Like it is too important and we drive, we derive so much of our individual meaning and value from who we are in our work. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it's, it matters. It matters tremendously. It's such a huge part of our identity is what we yes. do and why we do it. Right. So when you can cultivate in that work in that, in the workplace, like you just said, there's so many benefits to doing that. I love how you also stress that, it's not just about people being more positive in the workspace, because although that's really important and there's a whole host of things that come with that, with being more creative and more collaborative and X, Y, like it, that list goes on for quite a while, but you also mention in there, and I think this is really important that that level of teamwork and collaboration and connectedness allows teams to then move past the stressors, the mistakes, the how do we solve this problem? It gives them like the tools, not only the tools, but actually like, like the mental capacity to want to go, okay, yeah, we stumbled guys. That was a mistake. How do we fix it? How do we move on? How do we keep going? Cause that's going to happen, especially in workplaces, all that kind of stuff. Right. And when you don't have that, when you don't feel like you have a team behind you, when you, a, you'll be less likely to even try the thing that may end up in a mistake because you're like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. Like nobody trusts me. So I, I won't even try, but then you have no ability to get back up and start again afterwards. You have nobody to, to give you that helping hand up. Right. Which is so important. What are some really easy ways if you were to just pick a couple of things that somebody could start doing to kind of cultivate that, that type of culture in the workplace? Because a lot of people are probably not doing it the right way. There's, you see this all the time, especially in the tech space. I see a lot of it where it's like, oh, we have like foosball tables and like slides. Like what's the, that's great. And I'm not going to try to bash that. I think you should try to make your workplace fun, but what are some of the more tangible or maybe the more direct things that people, that a workplace could start doing both leaders and people in and actual disemployees. Yeah. Fun is interesting. Laughter is healing and it's wonderful and it's great. So having those places, but you know, it's so interesting if I can, let's just back up and talk about this a minute. Cause I do talk about this in the book and it is a bit of a hot button, like concierge <laughs> services, services and all these things that I, that I yeah. shiny are shiny objects that I see small business owners feeling like they have to chase to have mm-hmm. a good culture. And that's not the case at all, but let's understand in the context of our earlier conversation, why, why did Silicon Valley develop this trend? Because I was out there when this was going on of foosball tables and gaming centers and all of this. It's because of who they are and how they work. So you were talking about the people who do the vast majority of the coding and the design and engineering, right, of, of technology, Many of them are not neurotypical. 
mm-hmm. meaning they don't process and engage in society in the normal ways that I do and that I, you appear to do as well, Freeman. They, they are neurodivergent. So they tend to not make eye contact, for example, with people when they're talking. They don't need a whole lot of bro hug and that kind of thing doesn't really work for them. And they get very intensely get zeroed in and focused to work on something. And they will work nonstop monumental amount of time to bang through something. And then they step away and they want space to not, right? And so what's that space? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the gaming console. Oh. I'm going to go do those things. So this is their how they like reset their brain after they've gone through this intense time of work at work. Um, and so those things were created because that's what those people, and then people just looked at Silicon Valley and said, Oh my gosh, they have a, a, like, look at the crazy <laughs> productivity they have and stuff. And we, if we just put foosball tables and stuff and we'll have crazy product. No, you, you like, you have to really understand, <laughs> you know, you have to understand the situation. So yeah, it is not about chasing those kind of things. I mean, there is a difference between motivators and dissatisfiers and satisfiers. So things like pay, if you are not paying your people a living wage, if you are not paying your people at market rate or value for their profession, um, pay will be a dissatisfier, meaning it's going Mm. to distract them. And it's going to be this negative conversation that's constantly going in their head. When you resolve that, it will not motivate them to work harder or do better. It's table stakes. It's a, it's a switch, right? Light switch on, light switch off. When it's a dispot satisfier, the light switch is off. If you need the light switch on, right? But it is not going to motivate anybody. It isn't on. There are a lot of things that Hmm. are on off switches. And so in most cases, any kind of um, a, a benefit that you're offering people has very low motivational quality. What ultimately motivates people are these three things. Belonging. I'm working around a group of people that I love to be with, that, that I feel at home with, where I can just really hang and be myself and do, do my best stuff. The next one is they have to have autonomy. They don't need somebody all over them telling them how to do every step of the process. I got it. Get out of my way. Let me rock and roll. (laughs) Right. And then the last piece that they need is they need to know their contribution is seen and valued. They need Mm -hmm. to know there is meaningfulness in what they are doing. That understanding of how it's connected to the purpose and that, that it, it, it stands for something more than just getting the job done. When mm-hmm. you have those three things, you have people ready to engage and commit and make things happen. So when you're looking directionally at what you can start to do, you should be checking for those three things in your own job. And if you, if you lead other people in the jobs of the people that you lead, if you're struggling in your job, is it one of those three things? Which of those three things are you struggling with? Are you struggling with autonomy? Is somebody sitting on your head? Like, what do you need to ask for? What can you ask for? How can you have a conversation with your leader or supervisor about giving you more autonomy and why that's valued to you? How can you have a conversation about what would you need to see from me that would validate that you can trust me so that you don't need to be in my space all the time? These are adult to adult conversations and it can be hard <laughs> because so much of our lives. And so in work, we've been trained to have parent child conversations. The manager is the parent. You are the child, parent, child, parent, child is the worst. It, it, it needs to be abolished from the workplace. <laughs> Nobody wants to be the child. No. Nobody it makes wants it uncomfortable. to be the child. Yes. Yeah. And, and we've got to eradicate this idea that um, it's conflictual when we go to somebody and ask for what we need or say, this is insufficient for me. 
that's conflict is is not it first of all that's not conflictual that is that's showing commitment Mm. It shows commitment yeah. when your employees come and ask for things they need. It shows commitment when your employees come to you and say, this pay is insufficient. I, I, yeah. I, I can, I'm looking like, I see the jobs posted out there. I, I can move tomorrow and make $20,000 more. I'd love to stay. You don't have to give me $20,000 more, but come on, get me in the ballpark here. That's yeah. a respect conversation. You know, there's a there is an idea from Keegan and Leahy that I love, which is this, um, and they are they are organizational psychologists that people com- don't complain unless it's something that they care deeply about, and that thing that they care deeply about is something they're very committed to. So behind every complaint is a commitment, because if people don't care, I, I'm working through a merger um, situation with a client right now. We've had some rough go on a few things that the employees have not been very happy about and they're complaining a lot. And I said, that's okay. I love to hear the complaining because that means they're still committed when they get silent. I'm really concerned. Mm. Yeah. Because now they're not bought in anymore. Yeah. I mean, they're when they like, stop now, complaining, now they're just waiting for the paycheck. And they're going home. Yeah. They've given up. They're going to be looking if they're still they've, complaining. They've, they've, they've clocked fi- out, so to speak. Yeah. If they're still complaining, yeah. they're fighting for what matters to them. I want to be in mm. that conversation, right? That's not confrontational. That's constructive. That's co-creation. That's it. And it doesn't mean that we are going to agree all the time and it's okay. You know, if everybody agreed all the time, we would never have innovation. <laughs> yeah. Life would be pretty boring, wouldn't it? Yeah. We all just lived in a complete echo chamber and everything was great all the time. So, so much of positivity is not, it's not about happy-go-lucky, smiley. It is a mindset thing. It is about the frame by which we look at the world and that we see things. And like I said, it's so simple. Like a show up positive thing is to see that complaint as, hey, you really care deeply about that. Wow, I care deeply about that too. We've got something in common. Let's do something with that. That's showing up positive. Um, mm-hmm. It's not stop complaining. Just, you know, just roll with it. That is not show up positive behavior, <laughs> right? That's not going to solve for anything. We started kind of with with the workforce and what that looks like there. But I feel like what we're talking about now almost is the whole positive approach to life in general as well, right? Because that's, again, not what it is. I'm sure you talk about this in your book as well, right? Like those lessons aren't just something that we take with us to work. Those are things that we can then apply to our personal lives as well. I'm really, I'm not big on the whole, like, don't worry, be happy concept because that's not realistic. But what you're saying is where it's like, okay, cool. Like, let's look for the things that we can do together. Let's look for the opportunities that are there. Like, Let's not just be stagnant because don't worry to be happy is a bit like being stagnant. It's just kind of being, okay, yeah, like, cool. All right. Oh, I guess that happened. Oh, well, like it's not productive, but what you're talking about is a very productive type of positivity, which I think is far more important. Yes. It's, you know, the simplest way that I can say it is um, my call to action is stand in your agency. Mm. We're all adults. We're fully capable adults. You're a professional adult with expertise and knowledge and that can, can, can deliver value somewhere. Hopefully it's wherever you are. And if you, <laughs> if you are using your agency to fight for your ability to bring your best to work, to create space, not even fight, just to create the space. You know, so many times the space is there for the taking but we sit back instead of sta- stepping into it. You got to use your why agency to step into it. Why, why do we tend to not feel like we, what, what, what stops us from stepping into it? Um, I think part of it is fear. We have, we carry with us the um, deep scarring of, of shame. And um, so if we have tried and failed, which failed just means didn't succeed. But mm-hmm. if we if we've if we've tried and failed at something and and we felt shame around that failure, that's very scarring to our psych- psychology. And we are designed biologically 
to preserve our self-esteem. So we're going to resist putting ourselves in situations where our self-esteem is at risk. So that's a fear response. Yep. I, I think the other, if it's not a fear response, sometimes it is the path of least resistance. It takes a little uh, to step <laughs> into that void. And sometimes it's just easier to, to sofa surf. Yeah, to look at the void and go, oh, somebody else will step into it. It's fine. I'll just hang out yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, we're all guilty of it. I mean, it's just, it's the path of least resistance. It's easier to just yeah. stay where we are than to put the extra effort in, um, which is why in change, the question is always the what's in it for me. And, you know, change has to either resolve a troubling issue or be so aspiring to get people to move because... For the most part, we resist change and we're happy to, even though, even if we're not perfectly happy, we're more willing to just be idle than to activate. Mm -hmm. To activate. Yeah. It's that whole concept behind, we have a hard time stepping out of our comfort zones, right? What would you say is an easy way for somebody to, because it's difficult, right? Like you touched on it there as well, that it's against a lot of our brain mechanics and stuff like that to stop us from stepping into uncomfort, right? What are some ways that we can just, that we can give ourselves that, um, give ourselves that little extra push to be like, no, I, I want to step into this uncomfort now. Like what are some ways to do that both in life and at work, something that kind of would do both of those. I think practice is the best, you know, it's like going to the gym. So I think you need to think about this, like you do, um, building a muscle. If you want to run a marathon, you don't go out and just run a marathon, right? <laughs> you go through months and months and months of training and you, you may not even run more than a mile. your very day one. You might spend to, to you know, like there is a schedule you add mm -hmm. on and then you rest. You actually step back after you've done some of the big pushes, you do a little rest and then you build up again and you push a little bit further. We need to think about our lives more like marathons and um, it's okay. And we're, and we're always in training for that. But the more, instead of feeling like if we don't go zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds, it's not worth doing. We need to recognize and have a little grace for ourselves to, you know, to, to find our path, just start practicing, take little steps. And, and that's what I encourage in the book. Just pick one show up positive behavior that for you, not because you're trying to change anybody else, but for you having more of this experience in your day to day work life is going to give you the positivity bump you're looking for. Just practice that for a week, practice that for a month, mm -hmm. you know, pick one thing and just practice that for a while. Don't try to do 10 things all at once and don't think you're <laughs> going to fix everything overnight. Yeah, right. Yeah. The, um, there's, I just, um, I'm going to talk about this in, um, just a few minutes. I'm going live. Um, and you can catch it on a replay on my YouTube channel. I'm going to talk about, uh, this luck because it's St. Patrick's week. And, mm -hmm. um, the study that, um, Wiseman did on, luck and then he found that um there is a difference in how lucky and unlucky people approach the world and that you can become luckier by following the approaches that lucky people tend to use right it's the same concept in show up positive right it's the same thing in what we're talking about mm -hmm. um you know there are just a few approaches but i think you need to be the co-worker you wish you had that's the easiest guidance Ooh. that I can give you. If you look at your workplace and it's not as satisfying and fulfilling of a place as you want, if you feel like the um, it's gone a little toxic, the behaviors are a little toxic in the workplace, and you're like, people spend too much time bad-mouthing other people. Your show-up positive behavior might be to find and celebrate good things that people are doing. You might just spend a week just mm -hmm. really trying to notice and find those things and call them out and celebrate them to other people. And just so get, instead of focusing on all the wrongs about people, 
flip the switch, focus on all the rights instead. If you think that um, it used to be that there was more camaraderie and closeness and like an easy place to start is to just be more welcoming. Make sure that every time you pass somebody, you make eye contact and you say hello or how's it going or whatever, you know, don't come in in the morning and not take a moment to acknowledge the people around you. Try to make that a new habit in yourself. And it spreads. I swear to God, mm. it spreads. If you start making sure when you enter a room that you make some eye contact and some verbal connection, other people will start to do it. If you start smiling at people as you pass them in the hallway and just saying, hey, how's it going? People will do that back to you. So it's, mm -hmm. it's sometimes just the smallest things you gotta, you gotta think, I give you 50 ideas. I wrote the book. The idea is you keep this book at your beck and call and you find the inspiration that you need. There are 50 words there to inspire different ways for you to choose to show up that are going to fill your cup. They're going to help you be the coworker what you wish you had next to you. And you're going to show people what that looks like. And when they see you doing it and they experience the difference that they feel because you're doing it, many of them are going to choose to reciprocate and do the same. Yeah, I think that's when big change starts to happen. So many people think that they need to change people by telling them how to change where it's so much more powerful when you start showing and then they're like oh that's nice i like how that makes me feel i'm going to do that for others as well i also love how you just totally put the way that we look for positivity and the way that we look for luck into the same bucket because it's that you you hit that so well so much of the time that we we wait around for one of those two things to happen to us we think oh people are just lucky oh people are just positive these are just things that happen to people and if i wait around long enough i'll get one of them and it's like no like or, or to, i don't have to do it because things. it'll never come around to me it's never going to come yeah. around the positivity fairy is never going to visit my doorstep so deal with yeah. it right yeah so i'll just i'll just be unhappy it's fine yeah that's so interesting it's fun that we've kind of come to this point because we are clothing on the hour here as well. And it, it totally lines up really well when it comes to sort of cultivating the positivity in your life and stuff like that. I love finding out from my guests, what are three things that you do on a daily that help you cultivate personality in, into your life? So, um, one of the most important things that I catch myself doing all the time is that when I, and when I have a, a negative reaction to somebody. Um, it, I'm a, I'm a solopreneur. Um, so unless I'm with a client, I'm often on my own. So for me, it's often with my teenage daughter <laughs> that I experience these things or sometimes my husband, <laughs> but when I'm having that, when I notice like I'm having that visceral reaction and I'm wanting to respond back, um, typically with some passive aggressive response or something, or I'm thinking, um, you know, with my teenage daughter, I'll be thinking, I need to, that's not, it's not okay for her to say things like that to me. I need to mm. put her in her place or whatever. I, I actually mentally stop myself. I mean, I've gotten good at this. I mentally stop myself and I start talking myself through. And the question I ask myself is this, um, what's your intention? Mm. If my intention is to tell somebody else how wrong or bad they are, that's probably not going to go well. And yeah, so, no, if, if, it, if, yeah. so when I discovered that, that like my, this is that it's like, well, why do, why do I feel the need to do that? What's that going to get me? And I just start talking. I have a conversation within myself, right? Until I get to a place where I discover. So, so what's in, in terms of moving forward, what do I really need to have be different? And mm. then what, what do I need to, do I need to do something, do nothing? How do, how do I move forward? So I, I try to respond instead of react. And I try to make sure that my intention is something that is going to maintain or improve the relationship and move it to a new level um, versus trying to defend myself yep. for whatever. I think the second thing that I do is I do what I, preach in the book, I really try to every day have positive practices that fill my cup. You know, when I, 
go through the drive through window and I say to the person, the barista, thank you for coming into work today so that I could have my coffee. I appreciate you being here. Take cost me nothing. They, the, yeah. the little interchange that we have gives me as much happiness as it gives to them. And that's mm-hmm. the secret of positivity. It actually really mushrooms and spreads. So I, I really, truly try to do that. And then the last thing I think I do is um, I get out in nature with my dog and walk two times every day. Yes. I go in the morning and I go in the afternoon. And that yeah. is uh, oftentimes I'm listening to a podcast or whatever, but um, sometimes I'm constructing something for a client. So I use that as creative time, but that just time to myself and being in nature and it, it's just so grounding for me. And that may not be your thing. Your thing might be going to a gym or it might be your Taekwondo class or whatever it is, but having that thing that really um, gives you peace, I think is so mm. important. Those are good. I like that, that like being aware of your intention and kind of mentally stopping yourself. It's huge. I love that you use it in filling your cup, do the things that fill your positivity cup, right? And then find the things that make you grounded, things that make you peace and do that thing more often. One final question, and this one I try to do, if you can just do it like a, in a sentence, if everything else that you teach people disappears, right? You can't teach people anything else. You can only give them one thing that they can take forward to help them live a positive life. What is that one thing? I'm going to steal from one of my favorite um, writers and mentors. Uh, um, The words are, your yes means nothing if you can't say no. Mm, That's good. Your yes means nothing if you can't say no. There's so many levels to that. I wish we could go into it, but we can't. <laughs> so that's good. We'll have to leave it at that. Um, but we'll thank do, you so we can much, do a Rita. whole part oh, yeah. two conversation just. I know, that. right? I, I was like, I was like, I'm going to control myself and not go down that <laughs> rabbit hole because we need, we have other things we have to do today, and that's uh, that would be a great conversation. So we'll definitely have to have a second. Maybe we'll have a second part to this. Have yeah, to have if, you on again. If everybody lived sure. with that mantra in their head. And thought mm-hmm. about all of their interactions throughout their lives, and especially at work, with that idea of of it's okay to say no, mm-hmm. and there there's another option besides yes. Um, yeah, it, it would it would be it would be life changing. My other one is yeah, the, curiosity cures happier. the world. Like the uh, the other cool thing is like if if whatever whatever you want to respond just choose curiosity, ignore everything else. And just choose if we just chose to get curious instead of to react, um, life would be very different. Yeah. But you said one, yeah. so, you know, there's the, maybe right. a few more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Little mantras of the mantras of Rita. Um, amazing. Thank you so much, Rita, for being here. I, like I said, I really appreciate your time. We're definitely going to have to have you on again. Cause I feel like there's so much more conversation to be had. That's, that hasn't been had yet. So we'll have to sort something out and all of you listening can look forward to me chatting with Rita here again at some point in time. So stay in tune for that. If you are following me here, make sure to check out any other conversations I've had. You can go look at those, go look at the newsletter as well. It's at freemanbeals.substack.com. You can have a look on there subscribe. It goes out on Monday mornings and definitely go check out Rita's book. Show up positive. I know it's going to be on my reading list to put through right away to have a look at that and gain whatever kind of wisdom I can from what you're putting out there. And Rita, I'll give you the floor right now as well. Feel free. Anything that people should know about you or where to find more information if they're curious about what it is you're doing and how you're doing it. My website is my one-stop shop. So just go to igniteextraordinary.com. You'll find links to order the book. There is an audiobook version as well. If you're an audiobook person like me, I do offer workshops and keynotes and other things to bring into companies if, if that's something that's of interest to you. And then I also do uh, detailed consulting with organizations that are trying to repair a culture or go through a difficult change and want to you know come out on the other side with a positive culture intact. Um, so I, I'm happy to connect and LinkedIn is my powerhouse social media platform. So 
If you want to see the most of my content, um, come connect with me on LinkedIn or uh, follow me and, and click the bell next to my name. And that way you will get all the latest. And on my website, you can sign up for my Monday email with your show up positive inspiration for the week. I love it. You can get two positive emails in one. Yes, please. Yes, please. Me on that. Exactly. <laughs> and all the links for those of you listening or watching will be in the description below. I'll include all that stuff there. So don't feel like you have to remember what we said. Go into the description, have a look, click on the links that interest you, and you can explore that farther. Again, Rita, thank you so much for coming on. I just want to encourage all everybody listening or watching, go out there today and fill up your cup of positivity. Fill it up. Do the things that make you happy. Do the things that you know will make other people happy. Thanks so much, guys. If you're following this episode on A Cup of Positivity, I do encourage you to explore the other conversations I've had on this podcast where you will find information and value just like you did in this one here. And if you're looking for more, you might need to go find me over at From Stressed to Success. That's From Stress to Success, which is my new podcast where I'm going to break down the mindset that high achievers have and how they move through their lives in a way that doesn't make them burn out, get depressed, and keep achieving success in the future and the present. So you can find me over there at From Stress to Success. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Mm -hmm.